Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Great to have Dr. Michael Shermer on the podcast. Michael is the publisher of Skeptic Magazine, a New York Times bestselling author, and monthly columnist for Scientific American. He has been a college professor since 1979. Thanks for being on the <laughs> podcast today, Michael. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh boy, lots and lots of topics we could talk about today, and I'm hoping we can cover a smorgasbord of some of these things. First of all, I want to say congratulations for your 25th anniversary of, in a lot of ways, your life's work, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. It's uh, We started Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society in 1992, so it's our 25th anniversary of the organization of the magazine. And then it's also, by chance, just the 20th anniversary of my first book, Why People Believe We're Things, mm -hmm. still probably my best-selling book, I think. And then next month actually marks the uh, 200th consecutive monthly columns I've written in Scientific American, the Skeptic column. So we're just, you know, kind of using these all as, as an excuse to, particularly in the age of uh, alternative facts and fake news. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, because, in fact, we've been, you know, combating that for a quarter century. That's what we do. Yeah, it seems like now uh, things are more relevant to your work than ever. Yep, they are. That's right. You would think, you know, we've made progress for sure, but there's always plenty of skepticism that needs to go around. I have a question. What is skepticism? What's the difference between skepticism and pessimism? Well, there's no relationship at all other than they have ism at the end. <laughs> uh, people also confuse it with cynicism. Skepticism is just a scientific way of thinking. It's just using science and reason to evaluate all claims and assume that the null hypothesis, that is your claim is not true, 
until proven otherwise. So the burden of proof is on the person making the claim, not on scientists and skeptics to disprove a claim. So if you say you think Bigfoot is real, we say, well, that's nice. Prove it. You know, show us a body. It isn't on us to prove that there is no Bigfoot, because how would you do that anyway? So, and this is the way it is in all of science. You know, there's kind of an accepted norm of beliefs, a, a set of tenets that compile a theory or a paradigm that people work in, scientists work in. And if you come along and you say, well, I have this completely different idea, it's like, well, that's nice. What is it? And show us your evidence. And if you don't have any, then the burden of proof is on you to go out and provide that evidence to us. And that's how all science works. So really what we're doing is applying those principles of scientific skepticism to all areas of life. Do you think we could theoretically prove everything? Theoretically prove? Well, technically in science, philosophy of science, you don't prove anything. You just don't disprove it yet. <laughs> yeah, so no, all, no, that's a good point. Are, yeah, all truths are provisional. But, you know, there's degrees of confidence. Uh, you know, it's the principle proportionality that Hume outlined in his great work that you proportion your beliefs to the evidence. So things like the germ theory of disease, plate tectonics in geology, the theory of evolution and biology, the Big Bang, uh, origin theory of the origin of the universe, you know, these are all pretty solid theories. It would be quite surprising if they turn out not to be true. They may get tweaked here and there, of course on the margins, but the main core of the theory is very unlikely to change. And that's why when climate scientists talk about the consensus, they don't mean this in some sort of democratic way, like, let's all vote and see how we feel about climate. (laughs) What they mean is that the convergence of evidence has been so strong that virtually all working climate scientists agree on the general conclusion that climate change is real and human-caused. Now, they disagree on a whole lot of details, and they have different data sets and different computer models and so on, but the general consensus means that we can apportion our confidence pretty high because the evidence is so strong. And then other areas are, you know, not so, not so strong, and so there's lots of room for skepticism and very little consensus, so it just depends on the claim. Right. So you base things on the probability upon which we have evidence for them in any regard whatsoever. I mean, things, yeah, things right. range yeah. from like, we have like zero evidence that, that God, oh, that's a controversial statement. If I, remember, I feel like right there, that's a very controversial well, statement. But what was the yeah, pro- okay, no, what, what's yeah. the probability evidence-wise that God exists? Do, yeah, uh, have you put low. a number on that? Yeah, it's pretty low. It would be hard to put a number on it, but it depends on, because we don't have a, a metric that we're using to measure it. I mean, but of course, intelligent design creationists would say, yes, complexity, information theory, the number of component parts in a cell, for example, would be a measure of complexity for an intelligent design creationist to say that it couldn't have come about by chance, therefore there must be a god. Of course, the evolutionist response to that is that no one ever said it was by chance. Uh, There are always uh, simpler antecedents to these complex organisms. And that's the point of doing evolutionary biology is to figure out what the antecedents were to the structure you're looking at. So from a scientist's point of view, that would not constitute evidence for God. To creationists, it would. So then it begins to turn on what you consider to be evidence. What counts as evidence for something like a God? And it's pretty hard to find agreement with, say, theologians or creationists, what would constitute our agreed-upon experiment where we're going to run and see how it turns out, and then we both agree when the results are seen. I'm just thinking about, like, you know, it seems like a lot of times there are people that 
live in completely different worlds in terms of their worldview, I should say. And you've done research on like personality differences in your attraction, you know, skepticism in general. I mean, there are some people who are more attracted to the work you do. There are some people more attracted to like the work like Deepak Chopra does, right? And and there's individual differences in attraction to that way of thinking. Now, first of all, could you speak to that idea of personality and maybe how agreeableness could be a factor in this? Yeah, so there we're talking not so much about evidence as why people believe in certain things. That's the other area of my research that I spent a lot of time on. And there, it depends on to what extent you're open to new ideas. And it's good to be open-minded. It's good to be open to hearing new ideas because often we're wrong and the only way to find out is to listen to what other people have to say. But of course, you don't want to be so open-minded, as we say, that your brains fall out and you believe every crazy thing that comes along. And like all human characteristics, there's variation on those traits. Some people are more open-minded. Some people are more closed-minded. And, you know, and, and the rub is finding a balance between those two. And so you know, a good balance, I think, is to be very open-minded to new ideas, but also uh, high in conscientiousness, skepticism, and sort of critical thinking. That is, you're open to considering ideas, but you're also going to scrutinize them pretty carefully before you commit to believing them. That's spoken like a person who score, would score high in intellect. The thing is, you know, I, I'm a personality psychologist, so I'm viewing this through that lens. Uh, well, partly, right. a, partly a personality psychologist. And, you know, I've studied the openness to experience domain of personality, and you, right. you can divide it. And my colleague and I have, have divided it into two subsections, intellect and actual openness. And you find that if you do like a, right. uh, you can plot like in a two-dimensional space, well, in like, you know, with this radex sort of model, you can actually see where IQ is correlated with extreme manifestations of both intellect and openness. And you find that extreme openness is apopenia, which is where you see it, the tendency to see patterns in, in everything, right. basically everything. And that apopenia lies in a complete opposite spectrum as IQ. However, the interesting thing is that both intellect and open experience are positively correlated with each other in the general population. So this has created a paradox, right? How can it be that on the one hand, these two traits tend to be associated with each other, yet they pull apart in meaningful, significant ways when you look at the underlying mechanisms associated with each? And so this is just kind of, you know, just interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. You got to send me your papers on this I so will. I can, write, I, I I can write about this in Scientific American. I'm always looking for new column ideas. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I had not seen that pulled apart that way. It's hard to know where to go from that. I mean, a lot of people, like a lot of creationists that I meet, a lot of Holocaust deniers, you know, climate deniers, you know, they're smart people, very smart. You know, so it isn't a problem that they're uneducated or unintelligent. You know, there's something else going on there. Ideologically speaking, they want certain things to be true, and they're really good at marshalling evidence in the direction of the way they want things to be. And the smarter and more educated you are, the better you are at doing that. But that, of course, is not helping us get at what's really true. It makes it worse, actually. So it's probably context-dependent. There's probably another variable there, like your political or religious or ideological predilections that would then push you in one direction or another to utilize your openness and intellect to you know, evaluate evidence. Yeah. And I see a lot of people in, I want to say like your community, like that has a meaning to it. When I say that, I feel like that does mean something. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. yeah. I, I see a lot of people in that community and I can tell who are the ones that would score sky high on both intellect and openness because they're highly skeptical, but also highly spiritual, not necessarily religious. 
but spiritual. Like Deepak, like Deepak Chopra, you mentioned. He's very smart. He loves science. He's, okay. uh, but you know, he and I have a fundamental difference in worldviews. Start at a starting point. You know, he believes consciousness is well. He calls it the ground of being. You can't get underneath it or behind it. It suffuses the universe. It is the universe and. The physical stuff we're used to dealing with are manifestations of consciousness. So, you know, while you need a brain to, to be conscious, that's like saying you need a radio receiver to get the waves. I don't agree with any of this, but I'm just telling you this is his argument. But once you concede that, say, consciousness is the ground of all being, it's effusive throughout the universe, it's everything, essentially kind of a deistic, more like a pantheistic argument, then his arguments from there actually make sense. You know, it's sort of a Buddhist way of thinking about the world. And when you read his tweets in that context, it's like, okay, I see what that's supposed to mean. If you don't understand that, then they're nonsensical. They sound like just rubbish or just rambling. (laughs) That's funny. I just had a chat. The last podcast episode was with Dan Harris, and we talked exactly about that and how if you take some of these statements that people like Eckhart Tolle make as well, and you don't view it through a strictly scientific lens, but you could actually reinterpret the things to make sense Yeah, in some way. Yeah, yeah Eckhart Tolle. I mean, uh, I read his book, The Power of Now. And, you know, from his context, it does make sense that, you know, there is only now. There is only now. Our memories don't really exist anywhere. They're just current states of, you know, neural connections and stored synaptic patterns and so on that form our memories. But the memory of, say, 10 years ago is just what it is right now, and it'll be different a year from now or whatever. And there is no tomorrow. There's just, you know, so the, you know, the psychological now of roughly three seconds, that really is all there is. Now, of course, as I'm fond of saying, yeah, but my mortgage is still due next week. <laughs> so I have to, I can't just live in the now. But, you know, when Deepak and Eckhart talk this way, they're really talking as maybe therapists or spiritual gurus or something that make, people to help people put things into perspective like if you're always worried about your mortgage and you always want to you know make more money so you can spend more money you're sort of caught up in the hedonic treadmill then that actually psychologically is not healthy so really just stepping back it's like jews have this shabbat you know this sabbath is that you're supposed to take a day off and don't do any of that to put things in perspective and you know that kind of makes sense to a certain extent for a balance you have some kind of balance between you know, obsessing about the future or the past and living in the now. Yeah, I've been thinking about like this idea of guru-ishness. Are you a skeptic guru? Are you a guru within your community? I mean, like, (laughs) again, I'm trying to think of this from an individual differences perspective. There are people that are attracted to the wisdom of Deepak, and there are people who are equally, I would argue, a different personality profile who are attracted to what you can offer as well. I mean, is there such a thing as a, you know, skepticism guru? (laughs) Uh, well, in skepticism, atheism, humanism, and so on, there's a handful of people that stand out that you know have best-selling books or whatever. They get invited to conferences a lot, and and uh, you know you can you, you can think of you know people like Richard Dawkins and Dan Dennett and so forth. And you know maybe I'm one of those. I don't know, but I would say in our so-called community, there's less of that than another community simply by personality, style of reasoning. I think that we don't like gurus and hierarchies and that sort of thing. It's a little bit, the analogy I would make would be with libertarians. You know, the the reason libertarians will never be a big organized political party is because they hate big organized political parties. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's (laughs) a really good point. 
I've noticed this. You all are very skeptical of each other <laughs> in, yeah. in a way that, you there's know. A lot of, yeah. Actually, there's a lot of unfortunate inside fighting and personality conflicts and just ridiculous arguments over trivial things. But that. I think that's also what happens to most social movements. You know, Marxist, feminist, you name it. There's always a purification process of purging those who are not the purest, feminist, Marxist, atheist, whatever. You know, I'm, I'm fond of making a joke about the Atheist of the Year Award. You know, well, who would that go to? The person that didn't believe the most all year? I didn't believe even once the entire year. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's not really what it's for. But, you know, so what does it mean to have an organization that really isn't into organizations like religion? And it's an unfortunate thing that a lot of religious people think atheism is a thing. It's a worldview. It's it's like to be an atheist is to be something, and it isn't. To be an atheist is nothing. It, it doesn't mean anything. It just means lack of belief in a God. Really, what we're talking about is you know humanism or secular humanism or enlightenment humanism, you know, a commitment to civil rights and civil liberties and women's rights and gay rights and animal rights and equal treatment under the law and you know basic principles of a secular government. You know, now all of a sudden we're talking about something different, and that's really what you know. I don't like to define myself by what I don't believe. You know, so let's talk about more positive things like, you know, science and reason and rights and things like that. Well, that's an, the idea of belief is of interesting can of worms. There are things throughout the course of your day that you just have to have faith in in order to get through your day, right? Like you can't wait for the evidence to come in to... Of course. Get, yeah, yeah. So... I that, mean, it's one of the points of, you know, Kahneman and Tversky's heuristics, rules of thumb, is that most of the decisions we make, you know, we don't sit there and weigh the evidence and, and decide. We just make these snap judgments because, as you said, you, you'd never get out of the supermarket. You know, you got to just go in and go, toothpaste, I like the blue one, okay? And then, you know, fruit, I, I always get this fruit. And this, you know, you just, you, we're just creatures of habit and quick rules of thumb or else. And that works, for, I think, for most areas of life. Maybe it's not so good for, say, financial investments, getting sucked into gambling schemes or financial schemes. And in principle, it would be good if we didn't do that in politics. Yeah, you know, that if we weighed evidence more, but we fortunately we're pretty tribal there. We are, and you know, I've been thinking about like all these individual differences, variables. I think there's something else that goes beyond intellect openness, and I, I tried to touch on this briefly when I said agreeableness. But I would say that there seems to be in your community a high in free thinking and nonconformist tendencies. There's a kind of autonomy there that people in your community seem to really crave. Like to be able to be like, no, I don't want to be told. It's kind of anti-guru in a way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, cool. So let's move on to a second about a topic I know you've been increasingly more interested in, and that's free speech. Free yeah. speech on campuses and in the public discourse. And again, these things are more relevant today. You know, a lot, all these things we're talking about today right. are just so relevant. So let's start with, how about, let's start with campuses. What do you make of the whole... You know, Jordan Peterson has become like this yeah. celebrity. Now, yeah. I've published with him scientific papers, so I feel like I like I knew him you did? when. Oh, and yeah. He's he's a cloud bear of mine on, on openness to experience. And so... Is he pretty open to experience? <laughs> I would say he is. Yeah. I would say he's very open to experiences. But I've never met him. I've only seen him on uh, Joe Rogan yeah. twice. And one, I heard one of his podcasts with Sam Harris. And, uh, you know, I was just, somebody told me he makes a lot of money on Patreon, and I had no idea how this Patreon stuff works going on there. And I, I was just floored. I mean, he makes like $45,000 a month. Really? Yeah. 
Yeah, really. I should be more controversial. See, this is my all my friends and everyone, you know, says to me that, you know, Scott, you could be so much more famous if you just stopped trying to be so integrative. <laughs> I mean, like that's just the way I yeah. that's just the way I am. Like my personality is I want to take all the different perspectives and see what emerges as opposed yeah. to, you know, but man, I mean, it's amazing what you can do. I think of like, you know, the Milo phenomenon as well. I see yeah. Jordan perhaps as, oh, he would certainly not be happy if I likened him to Milo whatsoever, but there's some genus there. I yeah. can explain yeah. it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, I do. I think, yeah, I think from what I heard from Jordan, he really believes what he says. Milo, I'm not sure he believes what he says, yeah. you know, because he says it's wild stuff. It, That's a good it, point. It's a little bit like Alex Jones, you know, how much of it is show? How much of it does he really believe? He himself says, you know, it's an act. I don't know. But in any case, I think I'm hoping that the Evergreen incident is the, you know, the sort of the bottom of the barrel here. That it can't get any worse, although I've been saying that for six months now. You know, that maybe this will call national attention to a problem that will trigger administrators and college presidents and hopefully faculty to get a lid on this problem. And what's the problem? The problem is a, is a confusion of free speech and hate speech and what hate speech means. And, you know, if you, if you follow the reasoning, it kind of makes sense, you know, that we act based on our beliefs and many of our beliefs are based on our language and the way we talk about other people. And then that helps form prejudices or not. And therefore, the language you use matters, which is why we don't use the N-word anymore, for example. You know, we've tried to be better as writers to not always say he, say he or she or mix it up or, you know, use the plural. You know, those kinds of things, you know, I, I think are small concessions to make to political correctness that we've already done that are pretty reasonable. You know, and from there, you kind of start to scale up, you know, to like the stuff that Jordan's into with, you know, the various pronouns. And I guess he's combating some Canadian bill that I actually haven't, haven't read. And so I don't really know to what extent he's right about his claims that you could be prosecuted and jailed for not calling somebody by their preferred pronoun. I'm not actually sure that's the case. But anyway, that's what he says. So if that's true, I mean, obviously, that's taking things too far. And I think in the minds of a lot of these students who have been taught by professors who believe not in the old Marxist class warfare conflict tension, but in the newer sort of neo-Marxist identity politics conflict or competition for power. And so if you believe that different groups have different levels of power in society and that we don't want any group to have any power over any other group. By definition, on a college campus, administrators and faculty have more power than students. It's just by definition. So the students railing against these power differentials, that shouldn't surprise administrators and faculty because that's what they have been teaching them. And that's what and this is one reason why a lot of these administration and faculty uh, back down, why they cave into the demands of these students, not because they're afraid so much, but that they're invertebrates, as Jerry Coyne calls them, <laughs> but that they actually believe this, that, you know, that there shouldn't be power differentials in society because that's how prejudices play out in the political realm. And therefore, we have to stop it, right down to the words you use and the power that's on campus and you know, why these students are more concerned about, like, the biology teacher, Brett Weinstein, when there's real issues that people like Ian Hersey Alley call attention to, like female genital mutilation right here in the United States. Surely they can see that that's a, a bigger problem. But I think there's a practical thing as well on these college campuses. It's just easy to walk down to the classroom where your racist biology teacher is, is there and, and surround him and, and berate him. It's just simpler to do that than go to Somalia 
try to uh, you know affect some political change there to help women you know in a foreign land yeah, I hear your argument. I know that it can be controversial to just try to do comparisons between like what could be one person's internal drama or I shouldn't you say drama but internal, you know, what's important to that person, you know, it would really upset that person to say like, you know, but there are bigger problems than that sort of thing. Yeah. Do you think we can come up with like objective like relative problems like scientifically and say look, scientifically you're so preoccupied with this when this X, Y, and Z actually would have a greater impact on, I don't know, like, can we even do that? I I don't know if you can do it because, I mean, the example of Brett Weinstein is so uh, poignant because here is a guy who calls himself, you know, a radical progressive, a Bernie supporter, you know, a guy that's devoted his life to combating racism and bigotry. And, you know, he gets surrounded by these students calling him a racist and he's just trying to talk to them. And, you know, do you want to hear my answer? No. And it's like, okay, it may be beyond hope of talking. Yeah. You know, we intellectuals like to think, well, we can just talk through our differences. Sometimes that isn't the case. This idea of giving validity, everyone wants to have the validity of their experiences recognized. You know, it's kind of a fundamental human thing. And but also, we also view the world from our own perspective. So we all, I think, tend to overinflate the importance of our own personal experiences, in sometimes to the detriment of even taking other people's perspectives. You know, right? Yeah. So like you talk, yeah. you you talk about tribalism earlier. Yeah. I'm trying to think of like, do I want to go there with some of this stuff? And I figure, why not? Right? I mean, why not have an open discussion? I remember this big like Rebecca Watson elevator gate thing a couple years ago. And I think that was in your community. And I remember Richard Dawkins, very well-respected skeptic, kind of downplayed that experience in a tweet or some comment, a comment saying, you know, kind of saying, look, like, dear Muslima, you know, there are are genital mutilation, bigger issues than a male in in an elevator. And that really upset a lot of feminists in your community saying how, you know, that was really uncalled for, for him to contrast the importance of these different ex- invalidate her point just because there are great problems. Now, I'm bringing this up and I, I want to talk about this objectively. You know, like, what are your thoughts on that? Because one could make the case that we shouldn't be contrasting different things and that these students, and it is relevant to your point about college campuses, a student who, like, a pronoun issue or is upset at a teacher for triggering something or something like that. Yeah. Like, one could make the case that that is the teacher really should take that seriously because that is. Uh, very important to that person. Yeah. So who? This is. Well, these that, are complicated that, issues. Right. These are complicated. The, the person that say gets assaulted physically or verbally assaulted or verbally insulted or whatever, they're not really helped by someone saying, "Yeah, but somebody in another foreign country has it, you know, way worse than you." So chill out, dude. Right. And yeah, okay, yeah, that's true. You know, Richard kind of stepped into it there. I, I think his point was perfectly valid. But it, it was irrelevant to the point that I guess Rebecca was trying to make about hitting women up for, you know, a, a romantic encounter at three in the morning in an elevator isn't cool. I don't, I, you know, I'm still amazed that blew up into a whole thing. You know, it's like any guy reading that should go, yeah, all right, yeah, I get that. You know, it's it's a hard subject to talk about because it's so sensitive to people. Uh, it's like, right. you know, the moment someone makes the point, like, well, maybe you should not get hammered drunk at a frat party to the point where you're completely out of control, then you're accused of blaming the victim. Yeah, okay, we don't want to do that. But on the other hand, 
you know, if the guy and the woman are both completely plastered out of their minds, why is it that the guy has responsibility, but the woman doesn't? You know, that, that seems to be the opposite of what feminism was about. You know, second wave feminism, the kind that Carol Tavris talks about, that, you know, women want to be treated equally. And so this new version, this sort of third wave, is sometimes called fainting couch feminism. That is, women are now being treated as like they're weak. They're indecisive. They can't control their emotions. They can't control their liquor. They can't control their volition. And therefore, it's the men's responsibility to take care of them and monitor how much they're drinking at a party and don't take advantage of them and protect them. You know, to second wave feminists like Carol Tavris, you know, she finds this insulting. Like, you know, I'm capable of taking care of myself. Thank you. I'll control how much I drink and I'll make my own decisions and I'll take responsibility for my actions and what happens to me. And I think some of the conflict is between younger millennial and whatever the next generation after millennials is compared to older, say, people born in the 40s, 50s and 60s, you know, baby boomers. I think maybe there's some generational differences there and where they are and that, you know, the sort of feminist or civil rights, you know, movement and to what extent you think, you know, people have personal responsibility for their actions versus anybody can be a true victim. Now, Michael, as a personalized psychologist, again, I want to put together a battery and look at differences among feminist factions. Can we do that study as well within your community? How could we do that? Yes. Well, we could do that. I give them the same battery, the same exact battery. It'll be comprehensive yeah, yeah, yeah. that we're yes. giving the Deepak people. Yeah, yeah, we could do that. It would be good to know. I mean, it would be good to have data so we know what we're talking about. So much of this conversations turn on anecdotes, Correct. which, is, as we know, don't really mean much. You know, And then, then we start compiling just-so stories. Well, it could be that generationally there's these different you – know, now we're off the, the scientific page. Yeah. You know, I yearn for peace is what I yearn for amongst all these different factions. When I look at all this, I just want to say to everyone, like, very rarely do I see people start on common ground. They start on yeah. emotional triggered ground, so yes. to speak. Yeah, and that's certainly part of the campus thing. It's, you know, very emotionally volatile. Yeah. And you see these things explode. Now, to be fair, you know, I still think it's a minority of, of students that are into this stuff. You know, like I teach at Chapman University. I'm just there one day a week. So I don't I don't see a lot, but I don't see much of this at all at that campus. And even at Evergreen, now considered to be, you know, the craziest campus in the entire country. You know, we saw maybe 200 students on, on those videos total. You know, there's 4,000 students there. So where are the other 3,800 students? And my guess is they're just holed up in their dorms, keeping their heads down. They don't want anything to do with this one way or the other. They're just trying to study and just have a decent life. And that's my guess, is that most, you know, we can't call all students snowflakes and or whatever insult you want to use. All right. Uh, I think most of them are not into this at all. But, but of course, the, you know, the media is tasked to cover the extreme events. That's what it does, you know. So if you have a, you're not going to send a camera crew to some campus where nothing is happening and it's just boring. You're going to send it to, you know, the, you're going to show the videos of the students surrounding the faculty member yelling racist at him. So it's so interesting. I mean, I'm trying to process all this in real time because it's such, there's so many complex issues at play here. And Well, while you're thinking yeah. about that, let me just clarify one thing. You know, my community, our community. Yeah. It's not one. You know, there's atheists, humanists, and skeptics. And they're actually three different things. So atheists really are, are just more into combating religion, say. Uh, you might think of maybe Dawkins, Harris, 
Hitchens, you know, the late great Christopher Hitchens in that camp. Then you have skeptics like myself, James Randi, maybe, you know, and like the Skeptical Inquirer readers, Skeptic Magazine readers that are have traditionally been into debunking the paranormal, pseudoscience, alternative medicine, that sort of thing, and largely stay out of the religion business, although just peripherally when it comes up, say, regarding creationist teaching creationism in school, violation of church and state. Then humanists are more political. You know, they're into women's rights, reproductive rights, the right to die, euthanasia, the passage of legislation that interferes with civil rights. They're much more political in that sense, less concerned about, say, pseudoscience, and they're not so focused on debunking God as they are keeping religion out of politics, separation of church and state. So in your battery, you might think about, you know, tick the box, one, two, or three boxes that you consider yourself a member of which community because they're, they're a little bit different. I think that would be really valuable to look at, you know, subgroup differences within the community. That's great. And deep box people, a lot of them don't believe in God. They're not Christians. Right. They think the whole Abrahamic God thing is insane. Right. You know, but they're sure that, you know, there's a great spirit in the sky, you know, the, the cosmic consciousness you know, is aware of us. and you know, the secret and, you know, the universe knows what you want and, you know, not in any anthropomorphic sense at all. You know, so when Deepak says, oh, I'm into God, I believe in God, God cares about, you know, he's not talking like a Christian would at all. Well, speaking of which, I mean, these beliefs are really fluid They're across our life. They can be across our lifespan. You were at one point a fundamentalist Christian, right? Yeah, I was. Yeah, in high school and college, I went to Pepperdine University, Church of Christ. And uh, yeah, I was into it. So I really understand the mindset, the, the worldview. Internally, it's pretty coherent and logically consistent inside the bubble, particularly when you're surrounded by people that believe the same thing, and it just gets reinforced. You know, that's true for all beliefs now. We are always talking about the bubble and the cylinder and the echo chamber and all that stuff, but that was true in my religious beliefs. And it wasn't really till I got out of that, went to graduate school at a secular university. This is in the late 70s, long before the whole atheism thing took off. People might have been atheists. I don't really know. It, it just never came up. It wasn't a thing. Science and religion, no one talked about it. It was just irrelevant. And so it was easy to kind of give it up when I decided I no longer believed in the central tenets of Christianity or any religion and become an atheist. I just quit talking about it, and that was that. You know, There was no declaration of atheism and coming out parties or anything like that. That's fair enough. And I, I believe there was, I mean, a whole series of chain of events that kind of caused you to eventually become an atheist, one involving a college sweetheart who was involved in an automobile yeah. accident. Is that right? And you kind of were yep. sitting there at her bedside. and Yeah, yeah, that's right. I wrote about that in The Believing Brain, yes. It was kind of the last straw. It wasn't that it was a test. But, you know, she was in an accident, broke her back, paralyzed from the waist down. And, you know, it's, it's quite a shocking thing to see somebody in that state in an emergency room. You know, they, they got you strapped in this bed, hanging upside down, and all the oxygen masks and all this stuff. And hyperbaric chamber. And it's like, holy shit, this is unbelievably life-changing. And, you know, so I was just there constantly for weeks on end. And, you know, so I thought, boy, and, and this is a, you know, a really sweet, sweet, nice woman. I mean, not the kind of argument you could make from the problem of evil, like, you know, human sin or yeah. made bad decision. You know, it was truly an innocent person. The kind of thing we would say today, like childhood leukemia, you know, what's with that? And so I just prayed, you know, just like, all right, you know, if there's a God, if ever anybody should be healed, you know, this would be a, a good time. And, you know, nothing happened, of course. She's still paralyzed. I'm still in touch with her periodically. 
And you know, she had a full life, had kids, and got married, had kids, the whole thing, but still not healed. So, you know, to me, it wasn't like, okay, if God doesn't heal her, then I'm going to quit believing. It, it wasn't like that. It wasn't an experiment, but it was just like the last straw. It's like after that, it was like, you know what? Forget it. This is nothing. There's just nothing here. That's not necessarily evidence that God doesn't exist, though. I had a there are interesting possibilities. David Chalmers was on my podcast, the philosopher, oh, right. chatting right. about how many, he, he actually puts it at like a 40 to 60% probability that we're living in a simulation which is much higher probability than you would think. Really? But it's very possible that the simulators just aren't listening. I mean, they did their thing, they set it off, and maybe there's millions and billions in the galaxy of simulations. But Yeah. Yeah, right? I mean, so how is that? Isn't that still possible? I don't think so. I mean, there's these, to me, what are just essentially science fiction fantasies that are fun. You know, are we living in a simulation? No. How do you know? Okay, I don't, but you don't either, so... You might as well say, you know, say none of this really, you know, like solipsism, you know, none of this exists. You're just a, you know, a figment of my imagination. Well, you know, but Descartes already played that whole thing out and built from the starting point that at least I know I exist because somebody's doing the questioning. And, you know, he built from there a whole worldview that, you know, that essentially we still live in. And I think that's been refuted. Somebody else was saying there should be little pixels that go out every once in a while in the scenario because no simulation is going to be perfect. So yeah. it should be a little, you know, buffering or something. <laughs> well, I mean, some people think that the current presidency was a, yeah, gl- a so glitch in the system. There, there, there's a, a <laughs> pixelated big, problem big, there. Big, big, <laughs> big glitch. Like, how did that happen? Oh, yeah. So I, I guess this means you don't believe in an afterlife really either? No. Uh, my next book is on this, uh, Heavens on Earth, about the scientific quest for the afterlife immortality and utopia yeah and i'm skeptical of all of them not just the religious afterlifes of course heavens and so forth not only is there no evidence for that i think they have the same problem that the mind uploading people the ray kurzweil's the singularity people uh, have that is it would just be a copy of your connectome your soul your whatever you want to call it your pattern of information represents you all your thoughts and memories emotions It, it would just be a copy you'd still be dead in the ground and unless there's some continuity of consciousness like when you go to sleep and you wake up there's kind of a break in continuity but it comes back or you go under anesthesia and you come back there's a break in continuity but your point of view self is still there through your looking at the world through your eyes to me an actual you know death you know like with cryonics to be chronically frozen you actually have to be dead legally they can't do it like you know today this afternoon when you're strong and healthy and young you know, if you think about it, when you're chronically frozen, it's the worst day of your life. You know, the day you died. Uh, so, yeah. Or just copying your connectome and uploading it into a computer, turn the computer on like in Transcendence when Johnny Depp's inside the computer looking out through the little camera hole here. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's a problem of identity. You know, who are you? What does it mean to be you? There's your memory self, the mem self, and then there's the point of view self, the POV self. And I think you need both. And I think a copy through an uploading or chronic thing might work. That might be like a long sleep. I mean, it can't work technologically at the moment, but right. in principle, it might. Right. But heaven, you know, most religions say that, you read religious texts, most of them say that essentially your resurrection into heaven is a copy of you, that you are still in the ground, dead and buried, and that your soul, the copy of your pattern, it's taken to heaven or reenacted, recreated in heaven. I still claim that's a problem of identity, that it's just a copy of you. No more than a twin looks at the other twin and says, there I am. 
I mean, uh, I mean, I had this very conversation again with David Chalmers at what once once you start uploading to the system, at what point are you no longer the you here? Like we were like, what when we get to fifty percent? Let's say fifty percent of you is in the computer and fifty percent of of you is here is still you. Okay, like which one is you? I mean, you can actually do that thought experiment. It, it gets really tricky. No, I I agree that this is very. We don't know. We really don't know is what I would say. We don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'd be happy to be proven wrong in my skepticism here. Yeah. Uh, so for me, the default skeptical position is that it can't happen. Yeah. You know, it's a pipe dream. It's always been a pipe dream. But I'd be happy to be proven wrong. And, you know, I wake up in a silicon chip somewhere. <laughs> and uh, Although I, I, I never quite know why people think it'd be so great to live in a computer because these computers really don't last very long. <laughs> yeah. They're not that great compared to the, you know, electric meat of our brain. That could at least last 80, 90 years. Yeah. And I think, like, when you wrote a Scientific American article about this recently, I think, like, Jeffrey Miller, like, responded to your tweet or something with an interesting yeah. point. What was yeah. that? Well, oh, well, he said, how do you know that the continuity wouldn't last? Yeah. I don't. You know, I mean, nobody, no one knows. It just, to me, it, it seems like there's a logical break there. Because, I mean, the only way to copy a connectome at the moment, the way it's done with lower organisms, is you actually sacrifice the animal and kill them and slice their brain up. Uh, this was done at uh, at this brain preservation prize lab out in Fontana. I went out to see it, and uh, you know they 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 took the rabbit and they infused, they cut its neck and put two tubes in the, its carotid arteries, and while it was still alive, but anesthetized, and its own heart pumped the antifreeze into the brain. The problem with freezing brains compared to say freezing embryos is that the brains are so much larger you can't get the antifreeze into every last cell and synapse such that the freezing process that damages them and destroys the memories that presumably destroys the memories that are in there. So this process is supposed to get around that. And so they, you know, then sacrificed the animal, froze its brain, defrosted it, sliced it up, and looked at it under a scanning microscope. And you can see the synapses were still intact. So it's like, okay, but the animal's dead, right? Oh yeah, it's dead. Okay, so you copy it and then what? Yeah. Well, we put it in this computer and then what? Well, you turn it on. Wait, wait, what, what does that even mean? Turn it on. You know, I, so the analogy they said was, well, OK, it's like encasing a book in whatever, like a resin of some kind. And you, you'll never open the book again. But you could slice the pages of the book and read every letter on the page and know what's in the book. It's like, yeah, OK, that makes sense in terms of reading the book. But the book isn't going to come alive and all of a sudden have a point of view. So uh, to me, it's all just deeply flawed. You know, when I go to these, I've been to the Singularity Summit, a couple oh, of these, yeah. and I swear, it's like religion. You know, it's like, you know, here comes Ray Kurzweil, the Messiah. Yes. We get to live forever. <laughs> yes. Well, he's definitely promulgating a message that a lot of people want to hear. And who knows, with all those vitamin supplements he's taking, uh, with all his Coco 10, gotta, he takes everything. Tell you, Ray's about 10 years older than me, and he, and he looks it. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, well, that's, I mean, he would not be happy to hear that. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm sorry, but, you know, everybody ages and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, there is something. You can exercise. You can have a good, a decent diet and so on. But all we're talking about is yeah. living closer to the upper ceiling. Yeah, it, yeah. It's like the argument that people say, well, today people live twice as long as they used to. If you lived 100 years ago, 500 years ago, you'd be dead by now. No, no, no. People lived in their 80s and 90s a century ago or 500 years ago. Just not very many of them. So all we're talking about is more people making it up to the upper ceiling. You know, you remind me of something, a cartoon I saw, which I want to send you, where they had two different like lemonade stands, so to speak. One had a, um, a sign on it that said, 
uncomfortable truths, you know, sign up here. And the other one said like things that will make you feel good. And there was no, like no one was at the uncomfortable truths line. Like there was like a billion people lined up for the other yeah. one. You remind me of the person kind of yeah. at, at that lemonade stand. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, maybe uh, that's why my book, books don't do as well as Deepak's. <laughs> Although I did try to, you know, so my next book, I have a big ending about, so what's it all about? What's the purpose of life and so on? So I try to end on a positive note. You know, it's not like living now as if the big show is coming and this is all just a temporary staging where we practice. If anything, that would be an impoverished worldview. If you think, well, this is the big show. Yeah. Now you are on the stage. Yeah. Go. Well, that's right. I mean, that could be a book title. This is it. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah. No, no. That, I get your point. I am wondering personally, are you scared of death? Like in your world? No. no. Okay. So you, can, so you can reconcile all these things in a way in which you don't need these other things in order to make you uh, I don't, deal with that. Okay. You know, but that may be a temperament thing. I, yeah. You know, I, some people say they're bothered by it. You know, there's a whole theory about this, you know, terror management theory. Correct. You know, you know, most of everything we do is to avoid the terror of death awareness. I think it's nonsense. I have a whole skeptical section of my book on terror management theory. But I think most people just live their lives, even religious people. I think in the back of their minds, they're thinking, yeah, I get to go to heaven and so on. But most of the time, they're just living their days like the rest of us do. Okay, so I want to cover the last topic today something that is a mutual area of interest in, that's, you know, the science of flourishing and positive psychology. Before we get to your criticisms of positive psychology, I want you to talk a little bit about how science can legitimately inform and determine policies optimal for human flourishing. Oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not that skeptical of positive psychology. I mean, I've written about excesses, I think, and the concerns I have about it, like Barbara Ehrenreich wrote about in her book, you know, it, that some of it sort of blends over into that kind of Deepak, the secret, you know, if you just, yeah. if you wish yeah. it strong enough, your cancer will go away, you, you'll get to drive the Ferrari, you can have whatever you want. You know, that, that kind of positive psychology that I think most real positive psychology researchers would also disown. They would. Uh, they not, would. It, it, yeah, it's not healthy. And I think, you know, living a realistic worldview. But if, so in the thing, a couple things I wrote about it, one of them was about uh, Steve Jobs. So. You know, here's an example of somebody who, you know, definitely, you know, is pushing the envelope, you know, not letting himself be controlled by other people's restrictions and all that and thinking, you know, I can just will my way through life, you know. And, and so when he gets his cancer diagnosis, he's fiddling around with all this nonsense stuff rather than the boring old, you know, his oncologist recommendations. And he probably would still be alive had he done something about it at the right time. That's an example of over-optimism bias. That, you know, just think, I can do anything. Yeah, no, actually, you can't. <laughs> it's better to be you know, slightly more positive than slightly more negative, I guess. But how about just be realistic with a slight, you know, try to have a positive outlook. And maybe by temperament, it's easier to be around somebody who's more optimistic and happy. As you know, there's only so much you can do about that. Yeah. You know, some people, you know, it's at least 50% heritable. That form of temperament may be more. And uh, it's tweaked a little bit by culture. And you can change some of it yourself, I guess, by willpower, maybe. Some people claim it. But so that, that'd be my concern about it. And I guess in terms of human flourishing, the, the better thing we could do is to try to figure out what we've been doing right for 500 years and do more of that. You know, like expanding civil rights and civil liberties. I would have to say healthcare. you know, is for everybody would be a good thing for human flourishing. You know, the, at this point, our 
the healthcare system is so messed up. I almost agree to a, you know, a single payer thing, but, you know, just the basics of life, get everybody out of poverty. You know, these kinds of things, even though the hedonic treadmill is real and, you know, once the people are out of poverty, they're going to want more and more and more. That's okay. That's fine. Whatever. I don't care about that. You know, just in terms of human flourishing, let's solve the problems at the bottom. You know, before we worry about, I don't know, let's say some, you know, the, the life of rats, let's worry about the life of dolphins, cetaceans, the great apes, you know, just, just scale down and just start with the big stuff, you know, and that everybody has rights and things like that. That's the level of human flourishing. I think more that than the individual, you could do anything you want kind of psychology. I love that. I'm a positive psychologist and I, I wholeheartedly embrace that. I even, I work at the positive psychology center at Penn. That's my job. Oh, Oh, and, right. Um, and I have long believed that the morality dimension is woefully missing from positive psychology, and it needs to be a part of it. And I love that equity and fairness is and helping vulnerable individuals that you talk about that. Like I have, you know, I've been quoted as saying that, you know, I feel like a lot of the field of positive psychology focuses on helping the flourishing flourish more as opposed to helping the vulnerable flourish. And my whole mission, life's mission is to help the vulnerable flourish. So, well, uh, well, look, thank you for uh, putting that perspective there. Yeah, I think what you yeah. do, you guys are doing at Penn is great. I mean, it's really yeah. important. Yeah. And that whole positive psychology movement that Marty Seligman really helped pioneer, you know, is really a good corrective to all the negativity stuff that psychologists were studying, which is also important, but it's like there's other aspects of human flourishing that are important. So, um, yeah, that's all good. Absolutely, yeah. And putting all this stuff on a scientific foundation is really important. Or else, yeah, you're just in the secret territory all the time, right? Yeah. That study I cited in one of my columns on on entrepreneurs and how, you know, entrepreneurs have to overcome a lot of failure. Some over-optimism bias is good. Like, I can do it. I can do it. I can keep pushing. I can keep pushing. You're more likely to be successful if you do that than if you give up early. But on the other hand, there are studies showing, and Kahneman writes about this in um, Thinking Fast and Slow, that Entrepreneurs tend to err too much on the over-optimism side at the point where they really should cut their losses and get out of this investment and move on to something else. You know, the sunk cost fallacy kicks in and they hang on to investments way too long when they should just say, you know what, I'm a failure here. I'm going to move on and try something different. So there, I, you know, I don't know what the right balance is, but there's a balance there. Absolutely. And I just in my head thought of something I want to circle back that we talked about earlier in the conversation. Uh, maybe we can just end with this. And I think a lot about Robert Wright's ideas about he kind of he's like, you know, there does seem to be a teleos or teleos uh, to the universe. You know, there does seem like it, when you look at the patterns over time, there seems to be some order and happening. And you did touch on that a little bit where you, you talk about complexity and stuff. What do you think of that idea of teleos? Yes, um, I know Bob Wright pretty well and, and his ideas. I think he pushes that thesis just a little far. Of course, that's what writers do, and that's okay. First of all, I don't think there's anything built in or inherent or inevitable about that. So in my next book, Heavens on Earth, the last chapter, I touch on this idea. What does it mean to have a purpose in life? So you start with something simple like a star. What's the purpose of a star? You know, because theists go, what's the purpose of the universe? Well, what do you mean by purpose? The purpose is a star is to convert hydrogen into helium. You know, the moment it's a certain size and it hits a certain temperature because of the forces of gravity pulling the atoms together and you get fusion and then it releases through nuclear power, you know, light and so forth, you know, and then in, in the byproduct is helium from hydrogen and so on and so on. You build all the elements we're made out of star stuff. Boom. So that's its purpose. That's it. It's pretty simple. 
You know, so you, you just scale up. What's the purpose of water? It's to find its natural level. It's the purpose of mountains. They're to grow and to, and to crumble. It's, you know, rivers are to, you know, move along toward the lowest point of gravity. What's the purpose of life? Reproduce and flourish, you know, and simple life, complex life. So, you know, the more complex the life, more degrees of freedom you have, so more choices you have of what it means to flourish. But at some point, just, you know, trying to survive, reproduce, flourish, and, you know, that's our purpose. And it's vouchsafed to us by evolution. It's just the laws of nature. This is who we are. And that should be enough. And if it isn't, too bad, because that's all there is. And, you know, and according because, to you, <laughs> well, <laughs> according to science anyway, but with humans, we're so complex, there's essentially an infinite number of things that you could find meaningful or purposeful. But the research, the kind of research you guys do, shows that there are certain things we can do that will predictably bring us a sense of purpose. Now, I'm not talking about happiness here. Yeah. I review a paper by Roy Baumeister and his colleagues separating happiness from meaningfulness. Right. And yeah. that they're two different things. Like much of what I do in my life doesn't make me happy, but it makes me feel fulfilled. Like I just got back on a two-hour bike ride. Okay, so, you know, I went up this super steep hill in Santa Barbara here. You know, I'm just hammering away. It's hard. I'm, you know, it's painful. I can barely breathe. I'm not happy doing this. I'm suffering, yeah. you know, but it feels good to work out. It makes me feel, you know, more like a more purposeful, meaningful life when I work out every day. That's completely separate from happiness. And so, you know, much of what, you know, finding, you know, you know, having kids, having a family, having friends, helping charities, you know, these kinds of things don't make you happy, but they, in the long run, they make you feel you know, better about yourself. They bring meaning or purpose. However, you, now Roy in his paper, they didn't define it. They just let the, subjects to find it in their own minds but clearly it was different from happiness and so in the end just finding you know th those kinds of things meaningful work friends family loved ones you know some reason to get up every morning get around you know helping to make the world a little bit better place whether it's through religion spirituality science whatever your thing is and then also you know something like dance exercise meditation long walks on the beach hikes whatever it is you do that kind of, you know, get your body moving and you're out, you know, doing something, you know, that kind of thing seems to predictably make people feel better. Absolutely. You're right that there's this key distinction made between eudaimonia and hedonia. But, you yeah. know, my colleagues and I, um, particularly uh, David Yaden, who's a, a graduate student at the Positive Psychology Center, trying to make the case that there's a third pillar that's really been neglected, and that's self-transcendence, which is different than the other two. And it's a fundamental need. And there's individual differences in that need, but as well as, you know, we actually are creating a scale right now in self transcendence. I'm going to give you the scale someday. I'm going to, oh, sure. I'll put that in the battery, maybe. So I think that uh, you well, do. Well, there are some yeah. humanists that feel like if atheism wins out, yeah. then what? What about these people that have a high need of self transcendence? Don't we need to build the equivalent of brick and mortar secular churches? So these are like the Unitarian Universalists type churches where you go and you sing hymns to Newton. And uh, sort of thing. And, uh, you know, for me, I never really did it. I never ne needed that. But I know a lot of people do. You know, there's a lot of secular type Sunday services. Well, this is, I mean, this these scales and the science that is being developed around this is purely secular. I mean, it's about the core motive there is universal connectedness. Yeah. That's really what it's about. And I think at the end of the day, when you think of it in terms of, we think of the most secular friendly trait that we're studying is all, A-W-E. Because yeah. you don't have to believe in God to have all. You know, you can have all while right. having sex. You can have all while right. going right. to a concert, right. yeah. looking at nature. And so I would say you can live 
a spiritual life by cultivating all in your daily life without yep. belief system. So, yep. you know what? If we're agreed on that, let's end on that note. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much That's for good. a great chat. And again, congratulations Thanks, on the 25th anniversary. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking as I did. If something you heard today stimulated you in some way, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better H E L P dot com. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.